All right, let's return to uh, our last consideration of the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. And Paul concludes his first letter to this church with a prayer for their sanctification and three requests. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, he urged and exhorted the people there about how they should walk and please God. And he goes on to say that God's will for them and us is our sanctification. God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And he specifically mentions in that first section there, abstinence from sexual immorality to increase in our love for the brethren and to mind our own business. And then over in chapter 5, beginning in uh, verse uh, 13, he goes on to continue with numerous exhortations that we've observed. And all of this gives us further instruction to this area of salvation that we call sanctification. All Christians are really concerned about the initial part of salvation or our justification. We want to be sure that we are trusting the Lord to save us, that our sins are forgiven. Uh, that we have a guarantee that when we die, we'll go to heaven to be with the Lord instead of go to hell. But salvation is not a one-and-done event. It's not a one-way ticket to heaven that's independent of how you live. It's not, I said a prayer in church 30 years ago, so I'm saved. No, and, uh, too few Christians really are deeply concerned about sanctification or the process whereby we become like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been reading a book titled The Whole, H-O-L-E, and Our Holiness. And the author states there that the whole in our holiness is that we really don't care that much about it. He goes on to quote Bishop J.C. Ryle, who said, We must be holy because this is one grand end and pursuit for which Christ came into the world. But it's impossible for saved people to be holy without God's divine aid, without his help. And that's what the apostle stresses here in his prayer at the end of this epistle. If we're genuinely saved, God is going to complete that process of sanctification, yet we are to be involved in it. We are to cooperate with it. The apostle then requests three things of the believers there at Thessalonica. First of all, that they would pray for him and his missionary team. Then that they would demonstrate uh, peace and love and fellowship symbolized in that holy kiss. And then finally, that his letter be read to all the church. So as we scrutinize Paul's prayer and his request for this church, we can certainly glean a lot of truth and application for us today. So let's ask that God would do that this morning. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look to this final aspect of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, help us, Lord, to realize that it's not just to them, it's to us as well. We're thankful, Lord, that you're the God of salvation, including our justification, sanctification, and glorification. And Lord, help us to realize today that you want us to be holy. 
You want us to be separate from sin. And Lord, that you will complete that process, but we don't just leave it all up to you. We do have a work to do. We do have uh, to depend upon you to help us to be what you want us to be. So Lord, this morning, as we look into your word, help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives and be constantly uh, falling upon you and trusting you to help us be what you want us to be. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. As we look at this passage, we're first of all going to take a look here at this prayer for completion of God's sanctifying work. And obviously, as we read through that, you can see that God's work of sanctification, first of all, is complete. So let's first let's re, let's review a little bit that concept of sanctification once again. If you'll turn back to the book of Romans, I want to read a couple of verses from chapter 8. These are probably very familiar to you if you've been saved very long. And what it does here, it gives us the different aspects of salvation. And uh, Paul's writing here to the Roman church in verse 28, chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose, as we've seen in Thessalonians, his will for us is our sanctification. He goes on to say, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So that's talking about our election in eternity past. Before the world even began, God knew there would be people who were saved. He, he made sure that in spite of the sinfulness of humanity and their fall into sin, that there will be certain people guaranteed to be saved and become conformed to the image of his son, as he goes on to mention that here in verse 29. And then down to verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there we have the three aspects of salvation. Justification is coming to know Christ as your Savior and being declared right because of what he's done on the cross of Calvary. Sanctification is back up there in verse 29, being conformed to the image of his Son. And then glorification is the end production when we actually become perfected and become like the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly. And that will be in heaven someday. So those are the three aspects we've talked about before of salvation. It's not just justification. It's not just being saved and I'm done with it. This is the beginning of a lifelong process where we are growing in our understanding of the word of God, our obedience to it, and becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now going back to 1 Thessalonians, Paul first mentions this concept back in chapter 3 and verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Holiness and sanctification come from the same uh, background word, and they're often synonymous. So one of the purposes of being saved is that our hearts might be established in holiness and uh, this is before God and our Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we are back over in chapter 4, uh, in verse 3, as we mentioned earlier, this is the will of God for you. 
And then in uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 7, for God did not call us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And then we have the other directives uh, in the next few verses here that relate to our sanctification. And then going over to chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, we have exhortations we've already looked at, all of these being related to the truth that we are to be sanctified, holy, we become like Christ. And that's what all of this is talking about. Now, we think about that term sanctification. Uh, You'll remember that that means that we are set apart or dedicated or consecrated to God. So that means we're set apart from sin because we've been separated to God through this salvation. So with God's help, we stop sinning and we begin to put on the perfect character of Christ in its place. But as we discover everything the Bible says about holiness, we certainly can become overwhelmed. How do we keep all these commandments we see in the word of God? How are we to consistently live like Jesus did, who was perfect, who never sinned? Well, like everything else in life, we have to depend upon the Lord. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't glorify ourselves. We have to depend upon God. Now, as we go back to uh, uh, verse 23, uh, in the Greek language, in the original language here, which of those verses do you think comes first in in the Greek text? Well, it's not now may the God of peace. It's actually the word himself. So what that means that himself, the God of peace, he's the one who's going to assure that your sanctification is completed. So the Lord guarantees our sanctification. Some say that God's work uh, is justification and our work is sanctification. Is that really true? Well, yes, to a certain extent, it is. Paul wrote to the Philippian church that we are supposed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you remember that verse? But that's not where it stops. It goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So we must strive to submit to that work of God of sanctification in us. Without him, we will consistently fail and be discouraged. But as we are working with him, we can begin to overcome uh, sinful uh, behavior and put on the behavior of Christ. Now, as we look at that verse a little more thoroughly here, you'll note that it says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Well, that means he is the source of every aspect of our salvation. We are at peace with him because he offered his son to die in our place. He forgave us of our sins so that we could experience his forgiveness. And knowing that we're in right relationship with God, well, that makes our soul at rest. It gives us peace to know that no matter what may happen in the world, We're right with God. 
If uh, we are to die, we'll go to be with him. If he comes back, we'll go up to be with him as well. So we will experience that peace as we submit to the process of sanctification. If we're not walking with God, if we're not concerned about uh, uh, doing his will, we're not going to have that same sense of peace that we ought to have. So all these things kind of work together to our benefit and God's glory. Now notice as he writes here, the extent of that sanctification. God himself is going to sanctify you wholly or completely. Um, There's a sense in which our sanctification is complete when we get saved. From God's perspective, uh, that's the way it works out. We're justified, we're sanctified, we're glorified. But all that actually has to take place in time. When we got saved, that was our justification. That began the process. When we die or the Lord comes back, we'll be glorified. But in between is that whole section of salvation that is called sanctification. And that's always present tense. Now, there are many days where we might feel that we're never going to get to the place where we please God, where we're always doing the right thing. We often fail, and we have to repent of sin and seek the Lord's forgiveness and and, uh, move forward. And as time goes by and we grow older and older in the faith, well, that ought to be happening less and less, but we all know it's still a struggle. It's a daily struggle. But we can take heart in the truth of this verse Because God says his work will be completed. He's going to do this fully. He's going to do this wholly. So this is an interesting compound word, that word completely there. It's taken from two Greek words. One means to be whole or entire, and the other one means end. So this uh, means that will be totally and completely sanctified, but it also suggests the end of the process, arriving at the goal. We're going to make it all the way through, and God uh, will will sanctify us completely and wholly. So the Lord's going to complete this process of sanctification in your life and mine so that we arrive at that goal of glorification or perfection. Now, we also see that God's work of sanctification is thorough in the last part of verse 23. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this part of the verse kind of expands that idea of completeness or wholeness. And let's think a moment here about these three terms spirit, soul, and body. What Paul is expressing here is the, again, the wholeness of our salvation. It extends to every aspect of our human existence. And that's really what he's focusing on here rather than uh, the historical church um, discussion or debate on the bipartite or tripartite nature of humanity. Now, I'm not going to go into that too much here, but I think I probably ought to mention it. 
Now, what do we mean when we say uh, the, the human being is a bipartite structure? Well, that means it consists of two parts. And those two parts would be soul and body. When God created Adam, uh, he, uh, uh, he formed him from the dust of the earth and he breathed into him the spirit of life and Adam became a living soul. So he's composed of body and soul. The body is the material nature of man. The soul is the immaterial nature, the inner man, the self, the real you. And that would include our intellect, our emotions, our will. Uh, it would also include our sense of conscience and our self-consciousness, our awareness of self. And by the way, where would that in the world come from if we were uh, uh, creatures of evolution? Where would self-consciousness come from? When we think of a tripartite being, we add the idea here of spirit, spirit, soul, and body. So uh, uh, how do we distinguish between the spirit and the soul? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know. I think that they're so closely related, they're sometimes inter, uh, uh, sometimes uh, interrelational, or you can translate them in the same sense. Let me just read you one definition from a study Bible. The spirit is the vital principle by which the body is animated or made alive. Also, the idea of the rational spirit, the power by which the human being feels, thinks, and decides. Well, that sounds like the soul to me. Uh, and that's what uh, the, the final definition there is, the soul. So these two words, soul and spirit, can't always be distinguished, and perhaps they should not be. One author wrote, the distinction between the bodily and spiritual aspects of human nature is easily made. But to make a com uh, comparable distinction between spirit and soul is forced. Now, let's think about this. The unregenerate soul is dead in trespasses and sin. It has no spiritual life. The only thing we could say that it would have in it in regard to spirit, is the life that God gave it, which is a physical life at that point in their time. They don't have a spiritual life. But when you become saved, the soul is regenerated with God's life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit. He gives you spiritual life. And perhaps the spirit of man applies more to those who have been saved or born again of the spirit of God and it really doesn't apply to the unsaved man. And Paul, as he writes all these epistles, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people whose souls have been made spiritually alive through salvation. And uh, some have suggested that, well, perhaps maybe spirit conveys one's relationship with God. And the soul, uh, the self-consciousness of man, and the body, the relationships and the material side between people. Of course, your soul and your body is going to have relationships in the material life with people anyways. 
So uh, in any case, whatever direction the argument might go in your own mind, it's clear here that Paul indicates there's no part of us that will not be totally sanctified. The whole man is going to be perfected in Christ. And that includes the body. That's, of course, uh, uh, connected to the material side of life. And it's a concept that the Greeks did not uh, have in those ancient times. The Greeks thought that your soul could be purified only when it separates from the body. And that's why they didn't worry a whole lot what you did with the body in this life. What matters was the soul in another life someplace. But God promises that not just our soul, our our uh, born-again spirit, if you will, is going to be holy and complete. Our body will be glorified as well. And this is a great Christian concept. Now, the Lord goes on to say here, or, or not the Lord, but uh, Paul prays here that your whole person, your whole man, be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And note again that after every chapter, he mentions the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his parousia, his appearing. So again, there's a day coming when uh, Jesus uh, arrives and uh, he takes into hand the things of the world. And when he comes, we want to be blameless before him. We want to be cooperating with a process of sanctification. No matter how far we've gotten on that road, we can always go a little bit farther. But when he mentions here being preserved blameless, that means to be kept free from blame. We've talked about that before. So there's no cause of complaint against us because the Lord will see to it that we are preserved to that day. And when he comes, uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed. Uh, We shouldn't be sad. We should be happy that we finally arrived at that point in our life. So again, that's uh, referring probably back to chapter 4. When the rapture event occurs at that moment in time, believers will be transformed into their glorious eternal body, totally free from sin. So the work of the Lord in our sanctification will be a complete one. It will be a thorough one, including everything about us. Now, the last thing that Paul prays here has to do with God's work of sanctification being guaranteed in verse 24. He says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Do what? He will be sure we are sanctified. It's in God's hands, uh, not just ours. So the one who calls us to salvation and sanctification is the one who's going to uh, guarantee that the process is completed. Um, Now, who is the one who calls? Well, obviously, that's the Lord. And it mentions here a term we find from time to time. We read it back in Romans uh, chapter 8, the calling of God. He who calls you is faithful. Well, that alludes to the effectual calling of God in our salvation. In another passage of scripture, we're told many are called, 
but few are chosen. Well, what does that mean? Well, there is a general call of salvation every time God's word is preached or it's taught or it's shared in some way. In that sense, it's like an invitation. People hear the truth of who God is, of their sin, of how they can be saved. And when they hear that, God is really kind of inviting them to grasp hold of that truth, but they don't necessarily receive it or accept it. But God's effectual calling, which is mentioned here, is the one that actually brings us into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes those aspects that we've mentioned, justification, sanctification, glorification, and what God calls us to, he surely is going to complete and fulfill, and he guarantees that. He calls us because he's faithful, and because he's faithful, he's the one who's going to do it. He's going to perform it. All right, so God's faithful. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. God will never promise something that he will not fulfill. He'll never say he's going to do something that he cannot or he will not do. And this is one of his changeless perfections. One author wrote this. This is the central theme of the Bible, the faithfulness of God in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people. And we see that being true because we may fail from time to time in our walk with God, in our desire to please him, but he cannot fail us. He's going to forgive us. He's going to pick us back up. He's going to help us to move forward and uh, overcome that area of sin or failure. Uh, and this is going to be a constant process. And he will assure that we'll get to the end of the road. So he not only calls us, to sanctification, he is the one who's going to do it. He's going to perform it. He's the caller and he's the doer and that guarantees the process will succeed even though there are times we feel like it never will. So are you calling upon the Lord to help you every day work with him in this process of becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ? He guarantees the work is going to be finished. But if someone who professes to be saved has little interest in sanctification, uh, in pleasing God, in giving up known sin, uh, persisting in the battle for holiness, what does that say? Does that not put into question my understanding of what salvation's all about? We might go through periods of time that we call backsliding or we're just not what we want to be spiritually speaking. <clears throat> but if there's absolutely no interest in this, something isn't right. And we need to make sure we make it right. Now, <clears throat> as Paul continues here, he makes certain requests of the church at Thessalonica. And we find these in the closing verses. Uh, so first of all, Paul mentions in verse 25, prayer. Brethren, brothers and sisters, pray for us. And uh, Paul asks this very often as he closes out different epistles. We've seen through our study of 1 Thessalonians that he has interspersed prayer for the church throughout his letter. 
And now he requests that believers do the same thing for him. And when he says pray for us, well, I'm sure he's including Silas and Timothy, who uh, worked with him when he was in Thessalonica. There are other people that may be associated with his team when he goes from city to city. So he's praying for this whole missionary endeavor. Whoever might be involved in that gospel team, he's calling upon them to pray for them. And he's not just saying uh, that the church leaders ought to do this. He wants everyone, brethren, brothers and sisters, the whole community of faith to be praying for that purpose. One uh, commentator made this interesting uh, observation. Paul knew of no faster way to get the gospel through the enemy lines than by recruiting Christian converts into the secret service of prayer. He depended upon it as his basic weapon. And every person that I've known called to go to the mission field would agree with that. They would say that we would rather have a church's prayer support than their financial support. Uh, The financial support might come, but we really want to solicit the prayer support because they know the power of God in prayer and missionary endeavors. So are we the secret service of our missionaries? Are we praying for them on a regular basis? Do you even know who they all are? Some of us may not. So one of the greatest services you can render to God, especially in the area of evangelism and missions, is to consistently pray for those who are working uh, in other parts of the world to this end, especially those that we know and that we support in our own church. The second thing that Paul mentions here, we might seem uh, or think uh, is a little bit strange in our modern times, But he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. So what's Paul mean by this? Well, it doesn't seem that Paul was telling the leaders of the church or the people of the church to do this because this is probably already a custom of the early church assemblies. Uh, He's likely requesting the leaders to do this on his behalf Greet the people on my behalf. This is the typical way we do this. But why did they do that? And what would that mean? And note here it says that this is a holy kiss. We're talking about holiness. We're talking about sanctification. And we're talking about greeting somebody in a holy way. Well, This was an ancient custom that really predated Christianity. This is a way you would greet your family or close friends. And you probably have seen people do this. It's still a custom in some places today where you give a person a peck on the cheek or on both cheeks and you're greeting them. You're saying hello. You might uh, hug them at the same time. And this was adopted by the early church because... uh, of the close family relationship that developed within the church. And so you would greet uh, other believers in Christ in that way. And at that time, the men would greet the men, the women, the women. Uh, There wouldn't be uh, an interconnection there. 
uh, but it was a holy kiss. And that kiss was a symbol of something deeper than just a greeting. It was a symbol of love and peace and fellowship that you find among believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in this epistle, Paul told the church to be at peace among yourselves. And so this would be a way to show that. Normally, uh, you wouldn't greet someone in that way if you were on the outs with them, if you were having a problem with them. So this perhaps is a way to help keep that peace moving in the right direction. Today, we greet each other with a handshake, occasionally maybe with a hug. Uh, it's kind of the same type of thing. Sometimes we refer to this as the, the, the right hand of fellowship. And so we're greeting each other, but uh, the deeper meaning there is our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the God of peace is in the process of sanctifying us, then we certainly ought to be at peace with each other and creating an atmosphere where that peace can thrive. The last thing that Paul mentions is really a little bit more serious than a request. He says in verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to the, all the holy brethren. So this is actually um, an oath. It's stronger than a request. And he's really kind of putting them under an oath and himself under an oath that would make you liable to God and punishable if you fail. So he wants these leaders to be sure that the people get the message. And we're not exactly sure why he put it in such strong terms. Was Paul aware that he was writing uh, inspired words from God? Was he afraid that the leaders would just convey what he said without actually reading the letter? Or pick and choose who would get that letter or hear that letter in the assembly? Surely Paul wants the whole congregation to be aware of what he has written to the church, not just the leaders. Uh, some of the people in the church in that day would have been illiterate. Not everybody knew how to read. So his intent would have been, been for the, the elders or the leaders to read this letter in a public place, very likely the worship service of the church when everybody's gathered together. So in that way, the whole congregation, whom he calls holy or separated unto God, would be aware of all the issues that he has addressed. <clears throat> now, this is one reason why we publicly read uh, scripture every Sunday. However, we're living in an age uh, that's far different than that early church time where we all have our own copy of the word of God. Nobody in that church would have had a copy even of the Old Testament. They would have been too poor. It would not have been sufficiently circulated. You couldn't go down to the local store and buy an Old Testament Bible. So it had to be conveyed in this public way. And uh, we have a, a privilege today of having the word of God in our hands, in our homes. Do we take time to read it? Do we take time to study it? Do we listen to it when it's preached or taught to us and explained? So Paul put a premium on hearing the word of God, on hearing this epistle, 
uh, that was revealed to him, and so should we today. Paul closes out his letter in a similar fashion that he closes all of his letters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, the apostle started out that way. He mentions grace at the beginning as he greets them, and he ends with grace uh, as he closes out the epistle. And we all know that grace is a keynote of the scriptures. That is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unwarranted favor to the redeemed. We could not be justified or sanctified or glorified outside of God's grace toward us. And of course, this grace is chiefly related to our Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world with a purpose of saving us. And we can uh, never fully fathom why he would do that, but we certainly can be thankful that he did. And we show our gratitude uh, for God's gracious work in our lives by cooperating with his sanctification each and every day. So as we uh, end up this epistle, let's think about some things that are mentioned here in these last few verses. First of all, are you really concerned about God's work of sanctification in your life, of being holy like God is holy, of being uh, conformed to the image, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you endeavoring to walk with God and to please him in everything that you do day by day? Are you cooperating with this sanctifying work or are you really kind of rebelling against it? If you're living in some known sin, if you're harboring something against another person, if you're refusing to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness, well, you're on perilous ground. And you need to make the changes God wants you to make. On the other hand, we should be encouraged that God is overseeing the process. That he will sanctify us completely and thoroughly. And he guarantees that that will be the end. So he's there to help us every day as we uh, struggle, as we battle against sin and the world and the temptations of the devil. He knows when we generally, genuinely desire to submit to his will, and he's going to help us overcome those uh, difficult areas. So we need to keep trusting him and seeking his help each day because we cannot do this on our own. And we can be confident that one day, uh, uh, really not all that far in the future, we will be the finished product. We will be perfected in mind, soul, body, everything that is our personality. Then we look at these requests that Paul made of the church, and really we could apply them to the church today. First of all, are you consistently praying for missionary endeavors around the world, especially those that we as a church support? That's one way we can really honor God and help those missionaries is to have a way we pray for them on a regular basis. 
then are you living in peace and fellowship with the brethren? Are you promoting an atmosphere where the Spirit of God can work and thrive because we're cooperating with each other and we're acting in love toward each other? And then finally, are you in God's Word? Uh, We have read through this epistle. We have uh, preached on it. And there are several others that we have in the past. Every time we have an opportunity to come before the word of God, we ought to be uh, listening to it and realize this is one of the most important aspects of our sanctification. This is how we know what God wants us to do and what he wants us to become. Are we obedient to the word of God as we grow in our understanding of it? And finally... There's that issue of God's grace. Are we thankful for that grace that makes our life in Christ possible? Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would help us, Lord, to submit to the great process of sanctification in our lives. We're thankful, Lord, that you have justified us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have declared us not guilty in the area of sin. But Lord, we know that we need to live up to that uh, standing each and every day. So we ask you to help us to submit to the the, uh, scriptures, to the proddings of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to your will. Help us, Lord, not to rebel against them. Lord, if there's something in our life that has been pointed out that we know is wrong, help us to repent of that, Lord, and uh, overcome it. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own, so we just pray that you would help us each and every day. Help us, Lord, to be in much prayer for the gospel work around the world. Help us, Lord, to show our love and affection for each other and bless the peace that is in our assembly. And Lord, help us to be in your word each and every day. In all these ways, may we fulfill the will of God for us, which is our sanctification. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.